Hello and welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for this lesson in our series, Who I Am, where we'll be studying the book of John and where we see that John is writing these things to everyone so they might believe and that in believing they might have life. In this awesome book where John presents the Messiah Jesus as God, we'll see lots of key truths and great application that we can apply to our own life. Well, thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. Good morning and welcome. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the end of the chapter, verses 27 all the way through verse 54. As you guys know, we've been going through our series on who I am, and it's going through the book of John. And John's showing us who Jesus is as God. And he's showing us several different signs so that we might believe that he is the Messiah. And today we're going to be looking at the fields. We're going to be looking at the fields. Uh, Jesus uses an illustration of ripened fields as an example of us. And so our question for the day that I want you guys to be thinking about is, Who should I harvest? Who should I harvest? That might be a strange question for you right now, but we'll understand as we go through this uh, what that question means. How many of you guys have had somebody in your family or have somebody in your family right now who's just never ready when it's time to go? I know that I do. I have uh, in every, you know, when, before I was married and now that I am married, uh, every time there's always someone who's just not ready to go. And, you know, I, have to, I had to learn, especially early on in our marriage, I had to learn with Haley uh, how to be patient uh, because I tend to be that guy that wants to be early to everything, and then it wears on my patience, and I, I lose patience, and it's not a good thing. And so I had to learn to be patient because they just weren't ready. She, you know, so she sometimes just isn't ready to go. And uh, there's a lot of people like that. There's people in your family, as I look out and uh, you know see people nodding. Yeah, I mean, there's always someone in the family that's like not ready to go. And so today we're going to talk about people who are ready. And there are two different groups of people we're going to see. We're going to see people that are ready to go, and they're like raring to go, like, let's go, let's do this. And then there's going to be some people who are not as ready. They're ready, but not as ready. And Jesus is going to liken them to a field that is ready to be harvested. So let's look at it. We're going to read this long passage of Scripture here. And stick with me as we go through it, because I think I want to get it all as one big hole. And then we'll go through it section by section. Verse 27 of John chapter 4 says, At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you do, or what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? Okay, so stopping right here, uh, remember the context of this. Okay, The context is Jesus and his disciples are heading north. They're going from the area of Jerusalem, Judea area, and they were actually outside Jerusalem for a while. But they're heading north now, and they, they decide to go through Samaria. I think a big part of it is because of chapter 4 um, and all these Samaritans and the, the woman at the well. But anyway, they meet at this well, or they stop at this well, sorry. They stop at this well, and it's called the Well of Jacob. And it's out right outside the town of Sychar, which is a Samaritan town. And the disciples, they go in to get some food because they're out of food. So they don't have any food. The disciples go into town to get some. Jesus is there at the well, and this woman comes to the well. And it's a famous story of the woman at the well. That's what we talked about last time. And this woman at the well, you know, he gives her, he uses his wisdom in speech and gives her the gospel and tells her that he is the Messiah. And through that, 
she believes, or we'll see soon, um, that she does believe. And anyway, uh, so the disciples come back, and they're amazed that he's talking to this woman, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. Uh, but they were too afraid to ask, you know, what are you doing? Why are you talking with this girl? So, verse 28, the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come see the man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food that you do not know about. And the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did they? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you enter into their labor. From that city... Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the Lord, or sorry, because of the word of the woman who testified and he told me that he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he, they stayed for two more days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were staying to the woman. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard and ourselves know of this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, and for Jesus himself testified that a prophet is no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem and at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a royal official's son, whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, was imploring him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down that my child may not die. Or come, sorry, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started off. And he was now going down and... Uh, his slaves met him, saying, Your son is living. So he inquired of them the hour at which he began to get better. Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the hour which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. And this again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so this morning there's a lot. This is a lot of scripture. Uh, but it all flows together, and it's all, um, you know, it's all connected. And I think it's important that we read the whole thing like we just did. The first thing we're going to look at today is the ripened fields. The ripened fields. This is verses 27 through 38. Um, and as we look at that section, we're going to see that Jesus says the fields are ripe, or the fields are white for harvest. And we'll talk about what that means. Okay, so first, the disciples come back, and this is in verse 27, and we already talked about this a little bit, but the disciples come back, they're amazed, but don't question that he's talking to a girl, right? So then in verse 28, it says, The woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come see uh, who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And so this girl runs back, and she's so excited, so excited that she leaves her water pot behind, and she comes into the people in the, in the town of Sikar, 
and she says to the men, hey, there's a guy that just told me everything about me. Okay, she's saying, he's, he's telling me stuff that he shouldn't know, right? And she says this, and then she says, this is not the Christ, is it? And I like this because I think that she she's possibly using wisdom in her speech here. As we talked about last time, Jesus used wisdom in his speech to talk to the Samaritan girl. He did not come out and just say, hey, I'm the Messiah. And he didn't use the same language that he did with Nicodemus. He was just very wise in the way that he led her down the path to help her understand that he was a Messiah. And now we see the girl using that same wisdom in her speech, I think. Okay, because she doesn't come in and say, hey, I found the Messiah. I know who he is. And remember, she's an outcast. She's not the one that is respected in the city. And if she came and said that, these guys might say, oh, yeah, right, okay. But she said, instead, hey, this is not the Christ, is it? And she's questioning, and that again, that puts the puts the um, the wisdom back on them, right? Because it's like, she's like, hey, you guys want to come check this out and see if this guy is the Christ? And then, of course, they can be like, oh yeah, we you know we're we can do that, you know. And, and it's kind of uh, giving <laughs> giving into their pride maybe a little bit. It's just very wise in the way she words things to get them to to come out and check this out. So I really like that, and I don't know if she is maybe, she, maybe she saw the wisdom Jesus used in his words, and she uses that, or maybe she just has that wisdom, uh, but she does use wise, wise words there, okay, and so now the girl is gone, she's into the city, um, and the people in verse 30, they start coming out of the city and coming to him, right, so again, we talked about this last time a little bit, but the town of Sakar and the Jacob's well are probably not that far apart, right, you can probably see the city uh, from the well and so she goes in and starts announcing this in the street and the people start coming out so there are people coming out and meanwhile while these people are coming out and she's saying these things to them in verse 31 the disciples were urging him saying rabbi eat but he said i have food to eat that you do not know about and the disciples are saying to one another no one brought him anything did they or did he and so these disciples are worried about jesus because he hasn't eaten in a while okay they're thinking physical and again so many times we see people thinking physical when Jesus wants them to think spiritually. And he's going to get them to understand that in just a second. But they're thinking, man, Jesus hasn't eaten. But Jesus says, I got food that you don't know about. And so they're thinking physically, and they're like, well, who gave him food? Who, who gave him? Did any of you guys give him food? So they're like, maybe, you know, maybe John gave him food. Maybe Peter gave him food. I don't know. Uh, who gave him food? And then, um, you know, maybe they're like, well, the girl gave him food. Maybe the girl gave him food. Uh, but the girl, uh, you know, I thought that's kind of interesting because the girl was the access to the food he's talking about, but he's talking about spiritual food instead of um, physical food. And so what is his food? He answers in verse 34, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying my, my food is spiritual. Okay, It's doing the will of God the Father. That's what fulfills me. That's what fills me up. And it's the same thing for us. When we do the will of the Father, that's what fills us. That's what fulfills us. As humans, okay, um, to be have that relationship with Christ and be in fellowship with God the Father, uh, that is what fulfills us. Nothing else can. And so uh, he's kind of giving that illustration there. He says, "This is my will, or this is my food to do the will of the Father." And then he gives a little illustration, and I like this illustration. It involves uh, grain. Okay, look at it. It says in verse thirty-five. Do you not say that there are four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. 
Already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for uh, life eternal, so that he who sows and reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one who sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you do not labor, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So when I was reading this and doing some study this week, I looked at the grains of the Middle East, found several popular and very widely used grains that are used over there. First one was wheat. Wheat is used. Uh, barley is grown and utilized. Oats is another big one. Millet is another one, which we'll talk about in a second. And then flax. Flax is another one. Millet and flax, not as much used over here, uh, but they are used over here, and they are definitely used in the Middle East. Uh, I want to focus on millet because I think this is uh, what possibly Jesus is talking about here. So notes for millet, some things about millet. First off, this is an ancient grain. This grain goes back to 2500 B.C. So this grain was widely used uh, for a long period of time. That's the second thing about it. It was widely used. It's used worldwide. Um, it's even used today, almost worldwide, especially in the Middle East, Northern Africa, and those places. It's grown a lot down there. Um, another important and key note that I was looking at with millet, it takes four months from seed to harvest to harvest this crop. Okay, why is that important? Well, because of verse 35, Jesus says, you have a saying, there are four months and then comes harvest. Okay, so possibly he could be talking about millet. Okay, and fourth, okay, pearl millet, which is the most widely used millet in the world, uh, and it, you know, it's just the most used millet everywhere, it is white when it's harvested. Okay, I have some slides for you guys. Okay, this is the first one. This is just what millet looks like. It's very white, as you can see. Um, when, and this is like when it's ready to be harvested. This, this uh, slide shows the developmental stages, and it's important and kind of strange because the uh, flowering part of this grain is yellow. Like when it's flowering, it's yellow, but then when it's mature and ready for harvest, it's white, which is actually kind of like you know, the opposite of a lot of them, like wheat and barley, they kind of get this golden yellow when they're ready to be harvested, but not millet, it gets white. Uh, here's just another picture of uh, a scientist holding a piece of millet that is white and ready to be harvested. So, millet fields, I think, fit this verse 35 pretty well. And maybe, okay, maybe there are some millet fields that uh, Jesus is looking at, okay? And so, again, this is kind of me talking here. It's, it's not the scripture, but maybe Jesus is out there and his disciples are there. We don't know how many are there. We'll talk about that in a second, but... His disciples are there, and maybe there's a millet field right over here, and it's not ready for harvest yet. And he says, and he looks over there, and he says, Look, you guys say it takes four months for this to be harvested. And then I picture those people, they're coming up, right? They're coming to Jacob's well to meet Jesus. So I picture him turning then to the people and saying, Look, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are white for harvest, as he points to the people that are coming up. And he's showing a distinct contrast. You guys are thinking physically. This millet field here, yeah, it takes four months. You know, you plant it, four months, then you harvest it. I say, look over here. This is the spiritual harvest, and it's ready to be harvested right now. Okay, and he goes on to say, He who reaps is receiving wages already and is gathering fruit for life eternal. He's saying, hey, so here's the question. When, when do you receive the wage of a harvested field. When do you receive a wage of a harvested field? You don't receive that wage until the grain is sold, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, look, you're already, you're already receiving wages. 
Okay, you're already receiving wages for this uh, gathering of fruit, and he, and he throws in there for life eternal, showing that it's spiritual. Basically, what he's saying, I think, is this is ready and more than ready. People are more than ready to hear the gospel message and to believe in me. They're more than ready to do this. Okay? Um, in fact, it's the harvest is already happening, essentially. Okay? For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. That's verse 37. What is that talking about? Look at verse 38. I sent you to reap for what you have not labored, and others to labor, and you have uh, entered into their labor. He's saying, hey, listen, you guys are going to be a part of the harvest. And they are. They were a big part of the harvest. If you go on and you think of things um, like Peter and the day of Pentecost, I mean, harvesting 3,000 souls, right, in this illustration of harvest, right? 3,000 people came to Christ on that day. These guys, these 12, and by the way, we don't know how many there are there. We don't, we don't, I don't think all 12 are there. Okay, I don't think all 12 are there. Here's some scripture references, and these are a lot of scripture references uh, I have for you that you can write down if you want to, and you can go check it out later. Uh, but the conversion of Matthew or Levi, okay, um, that's in Luke 5:27. Not the conversion, sorry, when he follows, the calling. Uh, that's in Luke 5, 27 through 32, Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and Mark 2, 13 through 17. Um, and so, you know, that's after where we're at right now. Okay, so he, he probably wasn't there. He may have been. Uh, the final calling of some of the others happens in Luke 5, 1 through 11, Matthew 4, 18 through 22, and Mark 1, 16 through 20. That's the final calling of like Peter, um, Andrew, James, and John. And so, remember a long time ago we talked about the three different callings. That's the final calling. So maybe some of them weren't there. We don't know. Um, currently, in the Synoptic Gospels, we're in Luke 4.14, Matthew 4.12, and Mark 1.4. So we're not to those points yet where he has all 12 disciples. Remember, we're in the very early stages of what Jesus is doing. Because we John is unique, and it shows this early section that not all these other Gospels show. And so he's done the wedding at Cana miracle, and now he's come down to Jerusalem, and he's done some miracles there. He stirred some things up by doing miracles in Jerusalem and in Judea area. And now he's heading back north. Okay, so it has not been very long since, um, relatively speaking, it hasn't been very long since John the Baptist said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." So, regardless of who's there, I think, I think you could almost assume, or I mean, maybe or maybe not. We're not sure, but I think Peter, John, Andrew, Nathaniel. Um, and Philip, those five guys that were with him at the wedding of Cana, I think they're probably with them here. Um, they may not be, but I, I don't, I don't see any problem with saying that they went down to the feast at Jerusalem because they probably would have gone anyway because they were Jews, right, and they were religious. So I don't have any problem saying that they probably went down there with Jesus and were with him a lot during that time, and then just kind of hung out with him and waited for him to go back up before they went back up. I don't, I don't see any problem with that. So maybe these five guys are there. Uh, maybe it's more. We don't know. But anyway, whichever ones are there, he's telling them, hey, pretty soon, or he's saying, hey, you're going to be reaping. You're going to be the reapers. Okay, You're going to be the harvesters. And there are other people who came before you who were the, the planters, right? One sows, another reaps. And so who are these guys that are sowing? Right? It's like the prophets who were before them, right? The people who, who came before them who, who were declaring the Messiah to come. And now they're reaping that harvest of all this, these years of prophets and, and uh, men and women of God who are saying, hey, 
the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, and they get to say, hey, he's here. I'm going to reap this, if you will. Um, and so I think that's pretty cool. And it says that both in, both will rejoice together. Okay, everybody rejoices because of this harvesting. Okay, I see this in, in, our, in us as well. And this is 1 Corinthians 3, 6. And this is talking about sanctification, not salvation, but I think it... I think it can work together. Okay, this is Paul, and he says, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. Now, I think this is important because there are people in Corinth that were arguing, I'm an apostle of Apollos, I'm an apostle of Paul, I'm whatever. I'm, I'm this or that, whatever. And Paul says, hey, it's not about that. Okay, we all work together to cause the, uh, we all work together to uh, help the growth, and God causes the growth. He's talking about sanctification there. But as a big C church in sanctification and salvation, I think we big C church meaning universal church, we should work together to bring people to Christ. Okay, there are people that um, that may share the gospel for a long time and very consistently and faithfully, and not see any conversions. There may you know there may be people like that, and you know what. If they're sharing the gospel faithfully and they're doing what God's called them to do in that, that's okay. That's okay, right? Maybe somebody else is going to reap the benefits, reap the harvest, reap for them. And what's going to happen when that, that salvation happens? Everybody's going to rejoice together. Okay? Sanctification as well. You know, I may uh, talk to some kid and he's like totally turned off to me. And then one of the youth leaders talks to him and man, it just... That great conversation happens. The kid grows in the Lord. And I'm not going to be like, oh, man, I wish that was me that got to do that. <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's what my heart wants. But together we should be rejoicing, saying, hey, here's the growth of the body. And here's these people being saved. And so that's what Jesus is talking about here. Saying, hey, there's these other people in the past that have labored. You're getting to enter into that labor. Reap the harvest. And we're all going to rejoice together. Okay, so the first thing we saw were the, the ripened fields. Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. Now we're going to look at the Samaritan field, or the Samaritan field. This is verses 39 through 45. And when I think of being ready, when I think of being ready, I think of Christmas Day when I was like 10 years old. When I was like 10 years old at Christmas, I'm telling you, I got so excited. I got so excited. I would wake up early. Even though I'm not necessarily a morning person, I'd wake up early and I'd be ready to go. I'd be wanting to run in there. My parents would say, no, you have to stay in your room for this long. And I'd be, oh, I'm ready, I'm ready. And, um, you know, the things I think of, you know, my mom did several, we had several, like, traditions or whatever. One of which, like 90% of probably Americans, we uh, had pajamas that we'd open, um, I think, the night before. And we'd wear them that, that night. And then we'd wake up, and my mom and dad would stuff our stockings full of stuff. In fact, they'd stuff them so full they couldn't hang them up. And, you know, it'd be a bunch of little junk, you know, candy or, you know, whatever, water guns, little tiny water guns. I don't know. I can't remember what it all was. But all this stuff, socks, underwear, whatever. So they'd, they'd fill and stuff these stockings, and then they'd lay them all out on the fireplace um, or, you know, on the couch or whatever, depending on what house we were in. And man, I, I'd get so excited, and I'd be ready to go. I'd be ready to run out there and see what was in my stocking because I, I knew it'd be overflowing, and I could see some of the stuff before we even started opening them. I was so excited. The Samaritan field was just like that. They were ready to go. 
They were ready to go. Okay, look at it. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And he told me all the things that, I, that I've done. So they're, they're already believing just at the word of this girl. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed with them two more days. They wanted him to stay longer and, and tell them more. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So they say, it's not just because of you. It's not just because of you. It's because of what we've heard from him. And so some people went out there and they believed just because of her word. And then, as soon as they see Jesus and hear him talking, they believe him. And many more, it says. There's several words that stick out to me. Many more believed is one. Believed is a word that sticks out. So, as I said before, the fields are ripe. Maybe these people were coming out. They're flooding to Jesus. He said, hey, the fields are ripe. They start talking to him. They believe. Some believe because of the words. They bring him back. They say, hey, we want you to stay with us. We want you to stay with us. And so he stays with them, talks to them, teaches them. And many more believe. And why do what do they believe? What do they believe and why do they believe? These are two th- key things as we're talking here because we're going to see a different group of people uh, that's, that's a little different. So what's the first thing that they believe? The word of the, they believe the word of the woman, which was Jesus is the Messiah. If you go on in verse 42, you say you see that they, they believe and know that this one, who's this one? It's Jesus standing in front of them. This one is indeed the Savior of the world. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. So they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe in Jesus for eternal life. And you know they have background. They're Samaritans, so they're half Jewish. And they do have background. They know who the Messiah is. They know uh, that he brings eternal life, that he saves the people, and all that kind of thing. And so they believe in him as the Messiah. Um, and so why do they believe that? Because of the words of Jesus and the words of the woman, right? They believe based on the word of God, which is Jesus is God, right? They believe based on the words of God that he is Messiah. Okay, now look at verse 43, because 43 through 45 is a little transition, and it's very important. Verse 43 says, After the two days, okay, he stayed there two days, so after the two days he went forth into from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, and having seen all things that he did in Jerusalem, at the feast, for what they themselves also went to the feast. So, this is kind of weird. Because he stays there, and then he goes into Galilee, and Jesus says this thing that's kind of weird. He says, or he testifies, it means he said this thing, that a prophet has no honor in his own country. It's kind of weird, because like, the next sentence it says, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Okay, so it's kind of weird. Um, because Galilee was kind of his home territory, Right? And so, why did they not um, honor him? Or why, why is there no honor if they did receive him? Okay, I want, I want to point several things out, and then we're going to see the example in just a second. One is, eventually, Galilee wouldn't receive him, right? Because Galilee, the Jews, his people, his own country, the Jews as a whole rejected him and crucified him, right? The Jews were his country, and that they, they crucified him. They rejected him as Messiah. Um, Galileans even did that as well. Um, also, they received him, but not in the same way as the Samaritans. Okay, look at verse 45 again, and look at it closely. Look at the words. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Okay, so they received him. 
Why? Having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem in the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So they saw miracles and they received him back because of those miracles. Okay, that's very important. Constable says this is why uh, it says that a prophet is not received in his own home, even though they did receive him. This time, they wouldn't later, and they didn't in the same way as the Samaritan did. So why did they, the Galileans, receive Jesus as a whole? Because of the miracles he was doing. Why did the Samaritans receive him? Because they believed in him. They believed in him as Messiah, so they received him and wanted him to stay two more days with them, right? Had Jesus done any miracles in Samaria? Samaria? No. I mean, the closest thing you could call to a miracle is him just saying, you know, or him telling that girl, you know, what, what she knew or whatever, like what who she was or whatever. I mean, but that's not really the same kind of miracles that he's performing elsewhere. And um, as a whole in Samaria, he did not perform miracles, right? Had he performed miracle in Galilee? Anybody remember? Yeah. He did. In Cana of Galilee, he performed water, he turned the water into wine. Also, he performed a lot in Jerusalem and Judea, and it says that they were there and they saw those because a lot of them may not have seen the water into wine, but they did see him in Jerusalem. Okay? And so the Samaritan field is heart is ready for harvest. It was ripe for harvest. They're raring to get out there and go. Now we're going to look at the royal field. The royal field was verse 46 through 54. This could also be the Galilean field, um, if you want to put it that way, the Galilean field. <clears throat> 46 through 54, uh, when I think of hesitation but acceptance, I think of the ACT test. Okay, the ACT test, as you guys all know what it is, but uh, the ACT test is, is, for me, not fun. Okay, I wouldn't describe it as fun, enjoyable, or something that I'm really uh, excited to go do. Now, I do accept the ACT test. I know that it is good. I know that I should do it, and I got to that point even in high school. But I didn't love doing it. I wasn't excited to do it. I wasn't like, woohoo! I wasn't like Christmas morning, like, ooh, getting up early. I'm, I'm real excited for this ACT test. I was like, oh man, here we go again. Because right? I had to take it a lot of times, right? But I was like, oh man, I, I do not want to take this thing. And I'm not a great test taker anyway. So when I think of like hesitating but accepting, that's what I think of. The royal field, or the Galilean field, was ready for harvest, but it, but it was a little bit hesitant. Okay, the royal field is the second sign in the book of John. And although the family believes, okay, the Galileans as a whole do not, and watch how and when these, this family, this royal family believes. Okay, look at verse 46. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he had heard that this Jesus guy was doing all kinds of miracles in Jerusalem. So when he heard that he was in Galilee, he said, Hey, hey, come over here. I, I need you to heal my son. But then Jesus said, and this key 48 is very key, so look at it closely. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Now he was going down, and his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. 
Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him, and his father knew that it was the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in the whole household. And this again was the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay, so there, there's a lot here. Hey, there's a lot here. This happens, notice, in the same place that the water was turned into wine. Uh, my question for you is, why is verse 48 there? Why does Jesus say, unless you people see signs and wonder, you simply will not believe? Okay, it's kind of weird. It, it seems out of place. Okay, but here's the deal. This guy, okay, Jesus knows his heart, and he knows he doesn't believe in him yet. Okay, look at this. It says, Samaria doesn't need a miracle, but the man only believes after he sees the miracle. He only believes after he sees the miracle. Why? Look at verse 50. Uh, it says, Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. And the man believed what? What do you believe? The word that Jesus had spoke to him. What was the word that Jesus had spoken to him at that point? Your son lives. Go, your son lives. It, it's that your son lives. So he believed that Jesus had healed his son. So he still doesn't believe in Jesus as a Messiah yet. But Jesus has healed, but that Jesus has healed his son. Okay, then scroll down, or I scroll, you can flip over or look down at verse 53. So the father knew that it was that hour in which the Jesus said to him, Your son lived, and he himself believed, and he and his household. Now what is he believing in there? I think he's believing what Samaria, the Samaritans believed in, Jesus as Messiah. So he believes first. Okay, and this is a good good thing for you guys to remember and, and know. Every time it says believe, doesn't mean believe in Jesus for eternal life. Okay, and, and some people, when they go through the scriptures, they read things and they just say, Oh, look, it says believe. That must mean believe in Jesus for eternal life. Same thing with salvation. People go through the Bible and they say, Oh, look, it says salvation. That must mean uh, saved from eternal separation from God. But, I mean, it doesn't, right? There's physical salvation, there's spiritual salvation, there's salvation in sanctification, salvation eternally. I mean, there's all these things. There's, uh, and same thing with believe. You can believe what a man speaks to you. You can believe that there is a God. The, de the demons believe uh, that there is a God, but they don't believe in Jesus for eternal life, right? People believe there is a God. People even believe that there is a God that created the world, but they don't believe in Jesus as a Messiah, Right, so so what what is it that these people are believing? You got to ask that, as I say, and in context, you can see this guy believes that Jesus healed his son, but he still doesn't believe him as Messiah. Right, and this is really important for us, not only in salvation, but also in sanctification. Okay, because there is a stark contrast here between the Samaritans and the Galileans. Okay, the Samaritans believed based on what based on the Word of God. Jesus came to them, He spoke to them, and they believed. Okay, Part of that belief came from the Word of God in the Old Testament, and part of it came from Jesus' words speaking to them in the moment. Right? But they believed in Jesus for eternal life, based on, or him in Him as Messiah, for eternal life as from the Word of God. It's like they took God at His Word. They said, okay, this is what God said, we believe it. Okay, and that is a lot different than a man who comes to Jesus not believing, asks for a miracle, believes that the miracle happens, but then waits to confirm exactly the timing and everything of this before he believes that Jesus is Messiah. Why did the Father come to him and say, hey, 
or why did the would father inquire of the servants to say, hey, um, when did my son get better? It's because he was a skeptic. It's because he didn't, he didn't know if Jesus was the one that actually healed or not. I mean, he believed that Jesus healed him. He believed that his son, he believed that his son lived, at least. We know at a minimum he believed his son lived when he left. Okay, but then he gets there and he's like, well, I mean, what, what time? What time? And then when the time's lined up, he's like, oh, wow, okay. It was Jesus that healed, and he is the Son of God. Okay, but he's a very skeptical man who doesn't believe, based on the Word of God, he's, he's looking for a sign. I think this really translates to us. Okay, in, not in, saint, sal, I mean in salvation too, but I want to focus on sanctification in our Christian life. So we've already believed in Jesus for eternal life, but how do we believe in God in our daily lives? Because here's the deal. A lot of times in my life, I'm like, like I know God is good, but I want a sign. Like, I want him to show it to me. Like, if he doesn't show me that he's good, why would I believe that he's good? If he doesn't show me that he loves me, why would I believe that he loves me? If he doesn't show me that he's all-powerful, why would I believe that he's all-powerful? And it's the same thing that we talked about all week, the other week at camp with Habakkuk. Habakkuk comes to God in humility, and he believes that God is good, God is just, and he's all-powerful and sovereign. But he doesn't understand why. And so he comes to God in belief, saying, God, I don't understand. I know you're these things, but I don't understand. But a lot of times, we come to God and we say, God, you can't be good. You can't be all-powerful. You can't be sovereign. You can't love me. You can't this, that, or the other. Because look at the world around me. you got to prove it to me, God. If you love me, prove it. If you're all-powerful, prove it. And that's the attitude that we come to God with, as, even as believers. And, and that's not how we should come to God. Okay? We should be like the Samaritans who hear the Word of God and believe it. Okay? We have the Word of God. We have the Bible, the Scripture that says God is good, holy, perfect, and just. And, and we don't always understand that because we, don't, we can't see His zoomed out view and His eternal perspective the way that He can because we're not God. And His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our, our thoughts. And so we can't always understand it but we can always know that He is. He is those things. We always know who He is. The Bible, we can look at it and we can see who God is. Sometimes in our daily life, we just, we just don't do that. We don't look at it and say, this is who God is. We look at it and say, God, prove who you are to me. Just like this royal official is. He's like, prove it. Prove it. And then he proves it and he's like, okay, but what time? And, and you know, that's how I am too. I, I'm, I'm struggling trusting God or something. I'm like, okay, well, if God is good, then this. And then, like, the Holy Spirit or something convicts me and shows me that that's, you know, that's good. Or I read something in Scripture or I see an example that happens in the world. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that is true. But then I'll be like, but that could be coincidence. I'm like, that could, that could just be coincidence. Like, prove it again. You know, uh, I think of Gideon, right? And, again, Gideon and this royal official, they still believed, and they were good things, right? I'm, I'm glad they believed, and, and it's good that they believed. But they needed a sign. Gideon, the messenger, comes to Gideon, the angel, messenger, and he says, Gideon, hey, you're going to go and you're going to defeat the Midianites. And, you know, Gideon kind of like, Pfft. I'm like hiding in a little hole right now trying to get, my, get food for my family. 
and I'm the youngest, and I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, if I remember right. Small tribe. Yeah, right. He's like, no, you are. And he's like, okay, prove it. Prove it. Prove it. He doesn't take God at his word. He says, prove it. And, and I, I get it. That's how I am, too. It's hard. It's hard to take God at his word. All right, I think of Thomas. Okay, and this is a strong example in the New Testament. Thomas is known as who? What is he known as? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Right? Why is he known as Doubting Thomas? Because all Jesus had appeared to all the other disciples, and they all believe that Jesus is risen from the grave, risen from the dead. And they all tell Thomas, and Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe it. I will not believe it until I see the, the holes in his hands, the scars in his hands and feet. I'm not going to believe it. Jesus, then Jesus shows up, right? He said, Thomas, look, look at my hands, look at my feet. You know, you guys know the story. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's so powerful because God shows up and he believes. And it's great and it's perfect. It's awesome because God shows up and God does show up when we need that. But then what does Jesus say to Thomas after that? Anybody remember? He said, Blessed are those who believe and don't see. Okay, I know that's not NASB. But he says, you know, you believe because you saw. Blessed are those who believe but don't see. What is he saying? Okay, it's good to believe. It's not like if it's not like Thomas didn't have eternal life because he believed because he had to see to believe, right? You know, that's not at all. But Jesus is saying, hey, it's better for you to just take me at my word and not have to see it to believe it. And in our Christian life, as I've said, at least in mine, many times I want to see to believe. And God, will show, God shows me. You know what I mean? Like God shows me. It's not like it's, it's untrue. It's not like this, this leap of faith on something that's like not true. It is true. And so God does show me. He shows up and He shows me. But man, how much better would it have been if I just trusted Him? You know? And, and these Samaritans, man, kudos to this town of Sikar. Because these guys are half Jew. And Jesus comes to them and they just take Him at His word. They just say, hey, you know, here's the Bible, the Old Testament. And this guy lines up with that. And what He's saying to us, we understand it. As a Messiah, and he is, so we believe. They're not saying, hey, I gotta have a sign. Okay, so let's let's think about something, a few things with this last sign, and then we'll be done. We'll wrap it up. Remember that each sign, how many signs are there in the book of John? Yeah, seven signs, and then eight if you include resurrection. So there's seven signs, and John said he's wrote these signs, he's written these signs so that we would believe and believe in Jesus as a Messiah or for eternal life. So who believed at the first and second sign? Who believed at the first sign? Anybody remember? First sign was water and wine. Not very many people knew about that sign, but we decided there were five disciples there for sure. We decided that we think three of them already believed and that two of them believed at that moment, but at that moment all five of them believed in Jesus as Messiah. Okay, And so we think that miracle was kind of for the disciples to believe. Second miracle, who is this for? Who believed on this one? the royal official and his family. The royal official and his whole family believed because of this sign. So this sign was for them uh, to believe. 
Okay, also another thing to note about this, this is a new miracle in some respects. Okay, so far he's turned water into wine and then he's been in Jerusalem, done miracles. We're not sure what he's what he's done down there. But as far as the book of John and the flow of John, it's the new it's a new miracle because the first miracle, the only one we've technically seen in the book of John was turning the water into wine. Okay, he was there, he turned water into wine, and I don't know if you guys know this, but there are a lot of people who say that um, Jesus, you know, he didn't really do miracles. Um, there, there are things like the power of suggestion, you know, which medical field says and has proven that that can help heal you. So the power of suggestion, Jesus used that, and he used tricks, and he used, um, you know, whatever. So like at the water, water into wine, they might say, well, those people were drunk, so they couldn't tell that it was water or wine. It just didn't even matter, right? Um, they might say. You know, he was there, he had a lot of money somehow, and he, had, he went and bought wine and switched it out that way. Uh, just different things like that that could be said about that, um, that miracle. Now, this miracle is different. It's a little bit harder to do that with. And I think that's part of the reason John puts it in here, because it's a powerful miracle. It's a distanced healing. Okay, it's a distanced healing, and it was performed to a skeptic. It could not be a parlor trick. Okay, it could not be a parlor trick, and here's why. It couldn't be the power of suggestion, okay? Because he, he wasn't there to suggest to the child that he get well. Now, some might say because I think very deeply about these things, because I like every angle. Some might say he had a disciple there, and the disciple had the power of suggestion, suggested to the kid, you know, he gets better, whatever. He said, "You're better," um, and then he was healed that way. However, that could not work because there were no cell phones in that day. There's no way to communicate long distance, right? And so. Jesus okay, couldn't have communicated to that disciple when to do that. Why is that important? Because the son was healed at the exact moment Jesus spoke the words. Okay, So it was distance. He wasn't there. Um, it couldn't have been done by multiple people because you know, it, had to, it happened at the exact moment. So it had to be Jesus that did it. So there's really no trickery involved. It can't be. Right? And so um, it's just a very powerful, powerful um, miracle and second sign um, that we see here. And um, I think that's very important, too. As we go through, we'll see more signs of Jesus. In fact, next week we're going to see uh, one of the most popular uh, healings as a, as a third sign. And so um, just remember that. And for the impact, for the application, I have one sentence. Are you ready to harvest? Are you ready to harvest? I should have two sentences. I should have, are you ready to harvest? And how ready are you to believe God or to take God at His word in your daily life? Right? Um, so are you ready to harvest? There's people out there that need to be harvested. There are people that are white for harvest, just like the millet field. Okay, look out at a millet field and it's white and you're like, it's ready. Well, Jesus said, hey, that field's ready. That field's ready. Look at it. And he's talking about the spiritual field, right? And so there are people around us that are ready to be harvested, probably. And if not, um, they will be, and we can help them be ready for harvest by interacting with them and talking to them about the gospel. And so there's probably somebody in your mind right now that you think of that say, man, I should share the gospel with that person. I know I have somebody I always do, um, even if it's not very many. You know, in my environment, you know, I work at a church, so most people that I interact with are believers. But there's still somebody, there's somebody in my mind that I can think of and say, I, I, need to, I need to harvest that guy. You know, I need to try and harvest that guy. And then the second thing, in your own spiritual life, 
and your own walk with God, how ready are you to believe Him and take Him at His word? He is good. He is just. He's almighty, powerful, sovereign, perfect, loving. He is those things. Do you need Him to prove it to you? Or you just take Him at His word and know that's true despite the circumstances around you? All right, let's pray. Thanks for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this lesson. If you have any questions about this lesson or any of the other True to the Bible podcasts, don't hesitate to contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope that you join us for our next lesson. Thank you.